to another episode of Bow Sounds, the Pediatric GI Podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology and Nutrition, or NASPGAN. My name is Tamar Hajat. I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist at Cincinnati Children's, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Peter Liu. Peter, Thank how you. are you? Good. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. So, I'm okay. good. I have a question for you. This is yes. a very special episode for you. It is. It is. Yes. I feel yes. like I've never met uh, Kobe Bryant, my idol in person, but I've heard mm, that when you sad. meet your idol, it's like, it is not maybe always what you thought it was going to be, but how was it meeting your idol? Dr. It Marla was, Dubinsky. Yes. Dr. Dubinsky. It was amazing. <laughs> so I really wanted her to be on bowel sounds. And yep. then I sent her an email and I was like, Dr. Dubinsky, can you please be on bowel sounds? You're my idol. Two seconds later, she sends it. And she's like, "Yes," and I'm jumping up and down. I'm right, so I think happy. you because I feel like you actually did write in there that you that you're my idol, right? Yeah, you I did. did. I did. <laughs> hey, you gotta be honest, you know. Yeah, yeah. I feel like that I set mean, the tone is. for the episode. It's like, yes, yes. I look up to her. I'm like, she is amazing. She's a go getter. She is smart. Yep. She's accomplished, and she is so fashionable. I remember. <laughs> I I think I I said this once. I was like looked at her. I was like, like how like yeah. <laughs> how like golden hey, glow. Yeah, <laughs> golden glow. <laughs> And I'm like, oh, who's that beautiful woman? And she turns around and it's like Dr. Marla Dubinsky. I feel like she's going to be uncomfortable listening to this. <laughs> um, anyways, you know, one thing, though, about the fashion thing that I wanted to say. Okay. Yeah. So I was thinking that after we finished recording, because I believe she made the comment that like, oh, Peter, sorry, you're listening to these two women talk about fashion and stuff. But you know what? Mm-hmm. I feel like I've spent so many hours in various stores. You know, I'm like a lot more familiar with fashionable bags and stuff than I would ever want to be. You know what I mean? I feel like I have to like stand up for myself. Okay. I know yeah. about that stuff too. <laughs> you probably know about it more than I do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so bags and shoes or just bags? I mean, Leslie loves bags, loves shoes, loves clothes. It's obsessed with handbags, bracelets, jewelry. I mean, like I shopped at, are you familiar with the store Pacific Sunwear? <laughs> I am not. <laughs> yeah, you should not be. It's like basically where uh, like a 12 year old from Southern California would shop. It's like all like surfing and snowboarding stuff. Yeah. I mean, I shopped there until I was a, a GI fellow. So ah. that's kind of like where me and my wife sit. She's like, when we go to Paris, we have to go to Hermes and try to get a Birkin, blah, blah, blah. And yeah, I'm at Pacific Sunwear. I like had to stop. She like intervened. I was like, okay, fine. I'll order stuff from Banana Republic or something. But <laughs> She's like, you got to get to my level, Peter. You got to get to my level, my fashion level. Yeah, we're not at the same level. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? She works hard. She earns yeah. it. She's beautiful. Why she's, not? She's She's pretty. She's cool. Yeah. I mean, like the latest way that she's sold it to me is, uh, you know, Birkin bags and other Hermes bags are investments. Uh-huh. Apparently, I mean, mm-hmm. right now, if we just keep the money in the bank, it's uh, losing value as inflation goes up. So might as well invest it. She's but smart. No, but it's not really an investment if you're never, ever going to sell it. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, it's kind of like gold. You buy gold. And you wear it, and eventually the price goes higher with gold. (laughs) It's like gold. (laughs) Uh, All right. Yeah, let's talk about something else. (laughs) Let's move on to our topic. So our topic topic today is uh, with Dr. Marla Dubinsky. Dr. Dubinsky is a professor in pediatrics, and she's a gastroenterologist at Mount Sinai Hospital. She is a well-renowned pediatric gastroenterologist, ibediologist, and she is one of my heroes. She's my hero. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And like the topic, so... Pregnancy and IBD, I will say, so you suggest the topic Mm -hmm. and I will have to admit, like my initial reaction was like, what? We just, if they get pregnant, if our patients get pregnant, we just transfer them to adult GI. But obviously once I thought about it more, it's like, well, 
I'm sure every one of our patients, honestly, whether they're a girl or a boy, when they get diagnosed, either they or their parents are thinking about how does this affect the future? How does this affect family and children and all that stuff and these medications and blah, blah, blah. And literally now two weeks ago, I think I was at second year fellows conference and then I got a my chart message like, oh, you know, I am pregnant. What do I do? It's like one of my IBD patients. It's like, you got to know about that stuff. I literally yeah. went back to our notes from this interview. <laughs> I was like, uh, yeah, okay. No, no, it's good. It's Dan Humera. You know, it's going to control your disease. Yeah. So yeah, it, it's definitely something we all have to know about, you know? Right. So, and even if they don't say it, they're thinking about exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. And we don't really, I feel like I did not really learn what to do about, right. you know, how this affects pregnancy or what to do during pregnancy, that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. it was very helpful. I loved our conversation with Dr. Dubansky. Yeah, I, me too. Uh, we had perfect person to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And right. our exciting announcement about oh, yes. our next Twitter chat, our second yes. hashtag Pete's GI chat Twitter chat. Yes. And it is May 12th. Yep. Thursday. 7 p.m. Thursday. 7 p.m. 7 p.m. Yes. And we have the incomparable Dr. Sandy Kim, also a hero. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, so she is our like primary guest, but we may, I think this time the topic lends itself well to opening it up to more of a conversation with a broad group. Right. So we really hope people will join and chime in and, uh, yeah. yeah ask the first all these chat, questions. Yeah. The first chat, Dr. Mohit Kahar like killed it. I feel like I know. his tweets, if you, just write them down. You could like just submit it for publication. Right. <laughs> it's like <laughs> and so good. he had put links for articles. I know. How amazing was that? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. The references are all there. I'm yes. not I'm not, not telling anyone to pl- to plagiarize, but I mean that's like a whole paper on PELF. So Exactly. So it's great. And it came in at a good time, especially yeah. with the rising of hepatitis yeah. and yeah. acute liver failure with an adenovirus. So yep. Go back yeah. and read them. They're all on uh, PGI chat. Yep. So tune in this week to continue this conversation. If you have any questions, Dr. Kim will answer them. So join in. Yes. All right. On, on to the show. On to the show. Next time we should just try to say it together. <laughs> yeah, I was like watching right really closely together. then. <laughs> okay. On to the show. Wait, wait. <laughs> what? On to the show. On to the show. <laughs> you counted. It didn't do it. All right, next time. <laughs> next episode. Next time. <laughs> Welcome, Dr. Dubinsky. Thanks for joining us today. We're excited to have you. I've been wanting to have you on the podcast for a long time. You're one of my big idols. So I'm excited <laughs> to have you today. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. You notice how it took me, what, 30 seconds to say yes to you when you asked? <laughs> Maybe it's because you wrote in the email. You are my idol. I love you. That was it. That was the only reason. (laughs) Uh, So we're excited to talk about uh, the topic today about IBD and pregnancy and fertility. We usually start our podcast with asking some uh, questions to get to know you a little bit more. So this is one of the questions that we ask all our uh, guests for our listeners who don't know you, how would you describe yourself in one sentence? You know, I would describe myself as someone who is able to take risks and to be innovative and develop paths that are somewhat transformative and match people, I'd say, from my mentor-mentee relationships to really help create opportunity and then let them fly. My job is to get them ready. Luck is opportunity and being prepared. So I think of myself in that venue and try and mentor and coach people along to, to think within those lines. I love it. And then just another personal kind of random question. Okay. Tell us about a book, podcast, TV show, or movie that you read, listened to, or watched recently that you would recommend to us and to the listeners. Oh, well, no one is going to be shocked when you hear what I'm about to say. It is Emily in Paris. Uh, um, (laughs) And even it's get so much attention that even on SNL this past week, Peyton Manning, who should not be talking about Emily in Paris, (laughs) but the football spent the entire segment talking about Emily in Paris and not the football playoffs. So you can tell that it's really exciting, but it mirrors like my favorite city. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's very fashion focused. That's my new sex in the city, shall I say? Because that sort of gives me, and it's by the same creator. So oh, there you go. I didn't know that. Yeah. Right. Oh, right. man. Yeah. Tomorrow, have you yeah. seen that before? 
yeah, I started watching it. I was like, yeah, this is a good show. It's a good show. The first two episodes were, oh, I don't know about it. But then once I got more into it, I was like, oh, this is a very cool show. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just it's it makes you happy. I mean, Ted Lasso, I'll be honest, I'm sure everyone has seen. So I don't need to reiterate how happy it makes you. But for me, because Ted Lasso doesn't have the highest of fashion for me, <laughs> uh, I'm going to really. my fashion goals. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's great. Say, I, that's one thing I really admire about you, that you are just from the first time I saw you, I was like, wow, this attending <laughs> is very fashionable. <laughs> I try. Tomorrow, you got to focus. We're here to talk about <laughs> the topic here. Forget pregnancy. Let's talk about the latest fashion trends in IBD. Uh, <laughs> I like that topic. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, Peter, you got two women going out all out on hey, fashion right now. I'm, okay? My wife is into fashion and bags. I hear this all the time. I feel like I've heard all of Emily in Paris. I just haven't like watched it. And uh, but yes, so this is nothing I'm not used to. You have a daughter, so you have to know all about fashion. Oh, be ready! Be ready! The amount of random clothes we have sent to our house all the time—it's like just constant boxes of clothes. That's awesome. That's so great. Anyways, so. Dr. Dubinsky, can you tell us a little bit about how you developed your interest in IBD? So it goes back to actually my kids' residency. Interestingly, this is way before biologics. This is way before we had really anything that we could say is really the best treatment for IBD. As a peds resident, I just remember seeing young kids, adolescents completely derailed, growth failure, and just the concept that if you do things in a certain way, you can put them right back on their track. That was like my first, maybe naive pediatric like fantasy around being able to fix people. This was like, and this is a disease where I feel like there's a lot of work still to be done. And that was 1996. No one could have written that story as to where we are today, of course, about the amount of work, but there was just something in that conversation that really resonated with me. And then I was also loving liver transplant. Again, I set my bar really high. I was like, I'm going to go and be one of the few female and take after some other role models. And I went to Montreal at St. Justine to train more specifically in liver transplant because it was one of the largest outside of sick kids in Toronto, in Quebec for sure. And I just happened to meet the late and great Dr. Ernie Seedman, who is my mentor and unfortunately is no longer with us, but he sat down with me a bit in and said, so what do you want to do? And I'm like, well, I really like liver transplant, but there's going to not be many of us. And I feel like from a lifestyle perspective back then, it would have been 24-7. It's you, right? There was some leaders in Toronto at the time, but there wasn't a lot of transplant hepatology in the mid-90s. So I said, but I really love IBD. And Ernie, of course, was like one of the grandfathers of amazing IBD clinicians and researchers. So he said, well, I'm working with this guy, a really great guy that I think you guys would click. And his name is Steph Targan. And I was like, I don't know this person. So, you know, I was like Googling. And I'm like, oh my God, this is a guy who's the first author on the New England Journal, first paper on Remicade and IBD trial. I was like, oh my God. I was like, goo goo gaga starstruck. Because back then I was like, oh my God. So, you know, Ernie sort of had me meet with Steph and I happened to be going to Cancun as part of like spring break or something with a friend. And I stopped in LA along the way because I had my friend had just had a baby, like one of my closest friends. I was going to visit the baby and Steph agreed to meet with me. It was 90 degrees in March. I was coming from Montreal after the ice storm. So you can imagine how the fact that I was outside in March in 90 degree, I think Steph could have said anything and I would have been like, I'm there. Whatever you need me, you need me to sweep the floors in your office, I'm there. So it just became a, a relationship, an incredible relationship of really defining mentor-mentee with both Ernie and Steph. And they both taught me so many key elements about not just how to be a good IBD clinician, but how to think about IBD from a change-making perspective, because they both really made amazing you know, contributions to the field and got us thinking especially Steph. He's so visionary. He's always a decade ahead of everybody. And I took on that attitude 
which is what you asked me at the beginning. I was like, I think this is right. It may take a decade for people to catch up, but I'm willing to take the punches and I'm willing to just state my ground and stay with it and continue to do research. So that's how it really happened is I had people gifting me literally with knowledge and projects. And they must have seen something in me because I was pretty hungry, but I didn't even know anything that I had any capability. (laughs) To be honest, I didn't think I have any capability except like looking in charts, figuring out what the 60 GN level that matches clinical HBI remission. That was it. That was my skill set. But maybe they saw something that I didn't see. And that's how I think I approach young people in the Mm -hmm. field and building a legacy. Because if you don't build a legacy, there's not much else, right? You did all this for what, you know? And so that's how I approach why I went into IBD and the way that I am is really because of the people that have influenced me the most. That is awesome. That is an amazing story. I've read a lot of articles in IBD and I feel like you are building a legacy. I feel like you're doing what the people who taught you to right. do, you're doing that. That's amazing. That's amazing. I can't I mean, say. It's important. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Though. Thanks for saying that. I was even saying the other day when you guys invited me, I was like, you don't realize as you go through, you put your head down and this is more of a discussion for you guys as well. You don't realize what your legacy is and you don't realize until you start thinking about it. Cause the way I operate is head down action forward. And I never necessarily took the time to be even proud of myself. Not that this podcast is supposed to be about how to lead and how to take care of yourself. But I think it's important for us older statesmen to actually be able to you know, give some advice on how you get where you are and doing it through collaborations and building people up and not taking people down. That I think is really an important piece. But I never took the time to be proud of too many things because I just, I'm so oriented in action and moving forward and a little competitive, which is good because it helps you think novelly. I tell my fellows in my junior faculty, don't just publish something to be a me too. Mm -hmm. I want you to change someone's life tomorrow. So when they read your paper, their practice will change and change at least one life. Like that's sort of the way. And so tomorrow by some, what you're saying, it's like, I sit back and I go, all right, so maybe there is practice changes. There is a change-making phenomena in what you put out and how you want future generations to do it. So I really appreciate you taking the time to even say that because I don't realize maybe how many people I have helped, including patients and other investigators and, and clinicians. So I really appreciate you even taking the time to note that. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. Because I think for, for many of the episodes that we do and the interviews we do, we invite these guests who are so accomplished and we as junior faculty look up to them. But it's amazing to hear your personal experience and how you see yourself and how you got to where you are. I feel like that's where this podcast, our goal is to capture that because you don't get that through a talk at a conference. You don't even get that from necessarily talking to them. You know, It's got to be like, unless you know them really well, you may not hear that side of the story. So thank yeah, you for sharing that. Yeah, it's inspiring too. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. And there's the idea is that even change is okay. And that's another, this is this bravery that I was confident. And I was like, I'm going to stay at Sears until like I pass out at this desk. I'm not moving. <laughs> I got staff. I got him surrounding me. Like I felt really comfortable. And then I had to see my career through the life of my personal life and not just through my professional life. And that was later in life for me. And for my stepdaughter, I had to move to New York. I didn't know what my life would look like. It didn't matter. I made some changes and it all worked out because my my professional life and my personal life for the first time were aligned. And that wouldn't have happened unless I was brave enough to actually say, all right, I'm doing it. I'm going to make a change. And if it works out, it works out. And it's always something better on the other side. There's always, if you're someone who makes best of change, which is part of being brave and courageous and poignant and resolved and resolute, you'll succeed. So I think taking that also message about Change happens, ups and downs happen, but it's how you respond, which is going to help you move forward. And I think creating opportunity for yourself is also really important Mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I could listen to this forever, but we do have a topic. Um, (laughs) Let's get to our topic. (laughs) So I'm a motility specialist, but I do have a lot of IBD patients. And I think I have to confess, this is a topic that when Tamara suggested it, I was like, I know I should know about this, but I really do not know much about this at all. And I think even if our patients aren't specifically asking me, you know it's on their mind and on their family's mind. So 
going back to the beginning. So when you have a patient that you're just diagnosing with IBD and maybe their family asks about how this will affect the patient's ability to have children, what answer do you tell them in the beginning? Great question. I'd say you really nailed it when you said, even if it's not on the 10-year-old's mind, the parents, they read the black box warning because someone already told them about it and they're looking for pregnancy and it says not approved. There's a difficult interpretation, right? You don't even know what the package insert is really saying because it's not based on data. It's based on the study that got it approved. People don't understand that also, right? So it's like, all right, so we need to disentangle all the web information, et cetera. And I almost proactively tell people, no matter what the age is, because moms, by the way, are mostly the ones that are always asking, even saying, if the child went to the restroom, I didn't want to ask it in front of them, but I want to make sure that I read this correctly, that it won't impact her or his, but it's typically moms and daughters, to be fair. It won't impact her ability to get pregnant, like methotrexate, for example, is a biggie. Mm -hmm. But even the biologics, it just says breastfeeding unknown or pregnancy, check with your doctor or whatever. It doesn't really give you no problem using pregnancy. That's not the directive on the package insert or on the web. So I almost proactively know that that's on their mind. So I think the first step is always like what you said, put it out there. You know, Mm -hmm. put it out there. And the nice thing is I come from a place where I do this and I do that, meaning I could say, and in keeping with my other focused area of experience is I already can tell you that this drug we use to get people pregnant. Mm -hmm. And when they Mm -hmm. see that, they're like freaking out that they're like, really? So I turn really the conversation to say that it's clear from, you know, my own experience, but also the literature that if inflammatory control is the underlying must-have for conception and a good pregnancy and a great postpartum and safety of baby outcome, maternal and fetal, that we want patients to be in defined deep remission. Everyone defines it differently, but let's start with the fact we want their insides to be looking really good so that we can have the best chance of getting pregnant and staying pregnant. And I do say when they ask, well, do they have more miscarriages? Do they have the baby's developmentally normal because that's the other thing they also want to know when I say that we use it during pregnancy to get people pregnant. I said, the great news is we will get there when we need to, but I want to reassure you that we will only use therapies that aren't safe to use in pregnancy. We're not going to randomly start a therapy even when they're ready to get pregnant with the idea that, oops, I need to stop it in three months if you plan on getting pregnant. So I say, whatever we are using today, and I do make a caveat, the exception methotrexate, but we're not using that. I'm not monotherapies. It's not as a problem. I do explain that everything they're on now, because that's usually a biologic discussion more than it is even small molecules really at the end of the day, because we're not like throwing tofacitinib and Rinvoke out and ozanamod necessarily on a recurrent basis to 10-year-olds right now, obviously for a subset, but not repeatedly, is that I promise them that on Wednesday, when I have my preconception clinic, I will be having the same conversation because the concerns don't stop when they become preconception and the child who may have gone to the restroom right now is going to be asking me the same question. So I fully respect the concern and I'm here to reassure you that because of our meds and because of our ability to know what our targets need to be, they will have a successful preconception, pregnancy, and postpartum. That's my job when I meet with them and preconception. I think focusing on the importance of disease control It's like when people get too caught up in side effects of a biologic, for example, it's like that you're missing the point. The point is disease control is what's most important. It's the same with, sorry, uh, I mean, it's the same with how we counsel families now, by the way, about you're so worried about lymphoma, like all the things that don't happen. Let's, Let's be clear. This is the same for my pregnancy conversations. I said the biggest risk to any question you're asking, which is risk of the meds, no matter whether it's preconception state, pregnancy state, 10 year old state, growth state underlying the beast Mm -hmm. of the inflammation is what poses the most risk. And the biggest risk of any of our meds is not responding, not the safety. So when I start talking like this, I realize I've got them to reframe the frightening fear information because it's information for fear, right? On the internet, they're not doctors. They didn't go to med school and they want you to take control because parents often feel guilty that what if something happens and I'm the one who made the decision, both from a fertility perspective or any other perspective. So I really like to frame it that I got this. I'm in control. You have to trust that any decision I'm making now is not to put your child when they are ready for that discussion in any risk. 
my job, we're on the same page. We are aligned here in our goals. And you know, I would never say something if I didn't think it was aligned with your goals. And that's the way I communicate. And I communicate like that, which is why I think patients appreciate this proactive dialogue around shared goals. Because I think if you can get them to come up, and, right. and you to come down because we're often like over explaining treat to target. So I'm like, stop doing that, Marla. You need to come down to where it really matters. And that's how you meet people in the middle when you're talking about safety. Wow. That's, uh, that's really good to know. So just to talk specifically about the medications that are safe for pregnancy, either preconception or during pregnancy, what are the biologics, 5-ASAs, immunomodulators, any of the medications that are safe during pregnancy? And do any of those pass through the placenta? Great question. This is what really ignites the importance of information, right? Because as you noted, and you specifically asked about the placenta, because patients fear more than anything, less about their disease. They're willing to say, I will suffer and be symptomatic if my baby's okay, which is why, Peter, that discussion about why actually it's reversed, Mm -hmm. that if you're okay, baby's okay. And that's why we work with our maternal fetal medicine specialists only as I know. This is our clinic. I have both people in the room, me and the MFM and the patient, and we're all talking the same. So the biggest thing they're fearing is how the meds will affect their baby. And what we explain is that organogenesis happens in the first 10 weeks. So really the cool thing about it, like I try and make it like exciting and scientifically cool is that our biologics are not able to communicate with the placenta because there is no receptor that sort of takes their immunity and translates it into the baby. And that's why your baby doesn't have immunity. That's why we give the Tdap at around 26, 27 weeks is so that you give the baby your immunity to that. There's a reason for the timing. And that's because the placenta doesn't really open up for these immune globulins. And guess what? The placenta is smart, but it doesn't know the difference between Tdap immunity and infliximab. <laughs> like it just doesn't know. It's an IgG. It's I wish it could know, but it doesn't. So explaining that no communication happens for biologics until later is why we focus on the placental transfer. We then explain that yes, just like when they get immunity to COVID, and that's been my biggest like sell. It's like, hey, you're going to breastfeed, you get your vaccine, you're going to give them the immunity, baby's going to be born with immunity. And while you breastfeed, it will pass all pom-poms. But I say, but there is, remember the same thing is just like COVID antibody, the biologics are the same. But to date, and the piano study has even put an exclamation mark on our statements is no matter what they're exposed to, biologics, immunomodulators or not, it looks like from a congenital anomaly perspective, there is no difference. So that is what patients worry about and why the first 10 weeks you can spin it around and say, the baby's already fully developed by the time they're going to get exposed to the biologic. Probably the most light bulb moment in any conversation I have with a female patient who is very nervous around the meds. Okay. That is a light bulb moment. Then they sit back in their chair. They take a breath for the first time. They're like, let's go. Can I get pregnant? Like it literally... Over just that changes the whole discussion in a really amazing way. So it makes me so happy. My Wednesdays are like my happy day because I am getting people pregnant who were concerned about the fears and were willing to be voluntarily childlessness, choosing not to get pregnant, not because they want that, but because they just didn't have the information to be armed with. So I love the fact that I get people, all my colleagues around are like sending women to me just to say, Marla's going to tell you all about it. It takes <laughs> like hours away from there, my charting. And they just go, I'll let Marla tell you because like she explains it best. So that's been really uh, a tremendous opportunity for me to really take that fear away, which is different tomorrow than these small molecules and just making that distinction. So Right now, if it's a 10-year-old, 14-year-old, it's not necessarily we're saying you shouldn't go on a small molecule. I mean, you shouldn't go on a JAK1 or, or JAK, or you shouldn't go on an S1P. And we talk about METHO. And I actually tell you that Ozanamod has a very similar conversation that METHO does, which is about three months before conception. So don't worry about that right now. That's something we worry about. I hope we have to have that conversation. It means that we're still on this drug when you want to get pregnant. So that's a happy moment and they're excited and they know that we can always make change. A lot of people feel that this is a lifetime contract, right? And you all get this. You mean I have to be on this forever? You mean like when I sign up for this, this is it? And you go, well, it's like a diabetic coming off insulin. And then you're like, no, let's not use that analogy because that's a forever. But I spin it to say for now, for now, this is what we need to get you where you need to be. 
to even consider pregnancy. If it means that I need to be creative and I need to figure out how to get those 10 weeks without any of these meds during organogenesis, I will make it happen and I will tell you how. So that's where the expertise, and I'm really appreciative of you asking me to talk about it because even though, Peter, you say it's something you should know, I'll tell you, even my like my IVD friends mm-hmm. at Sinai send the patients to me because it's impossible to keep up with the half-lives of these drugs and when is it safe to breastfeed. So you don't need to know too much other than there's people solving this problem out there. So that's, I think, important is that right now we don't have to worry about it. Someone who knows all this will figure it out when you get to that point. That's the way I communicate right now. And then, so you talked about this a little bit before about how really disease activity has the biggest impact on fertility and maybe even pregnancy delivery. Do we have data? What is the impact of maybe increased active disease on fertility, pregnancy, and delivery? Great. So we'll start with fertility because older studies, there was one sort of study that proposed, and I'm talking a while ago, and it was published in IBD Journal, that said that if you have high disease activity, you have a lower AMH. Antimalarial hormone is really about your ovarian reserve, right? It's more about your follicles. It doesn't tell us the quality of them, but it tells us potentially you have many of them. By the way, AMH is inversely you know, correlated with age. And after 35, AMH pretty well drops substantially. And then after 40, well, there's a problem. And that doesn't mean that the two or three eggs you do have are not quality. So I don't confuse the two, but quantity uh, and just potential because there's plenty of people who have a low image and they get pregnant, no problem. So it's a little bit of a tricky measure, but like years ago, maybe a decade, there was a conversation that AMH inversely correlated with CDAI. The higher CDAI, the lower. People were like, hey, that was never replicated. But now recently in the last year, there are people who have actually shown that active disease is indeed correlated with lower AMH. So there is potentially a fertility issue. It hasn't been borne out because no one has set up a prospective fertility registry. So the cool thing is Zoe Gottlieb is one of my adult junior colleagues who graduated from Mount Sinai. Her and past fellows at the University of Minnesota, Eugenia Smith, is actually developing a web-based prospective Mm -hmm. fertility registry that will hopefully answer every question we have zero idea about. Right. Even even in UC, the idea that J-pouch surgery or the iliopouch anal anastomosis component, not the subtotal, but the actual production of the stump, you know, taking the stump out and creating the pouch, that's where you can get adhesions in your pelvis. And it's a plumbing issue. It's not that your uterus can't carry and you can't form a placenta. No problem carrying the baby. It's just, do you get pregnant? using assisted reproductive, or can you get pregnant naturally? That's the only thing that really differentiates. That also is not clear to patients. They misread sometimes and are fearful that they can't get pregnant because they had a J-pouch. Again, we don't know prospective information. We don't know if open surgery has the same risk as laparoscopic. There's one study that was a survey study that suggested you can get pregnant faster. But again, you asked people on a retrospective recall survey how quickly it took you to get pregnant if you were laparoscopic versus open. So we will hopefully solve that problem in the next five years. So that's that issue. Then you go to the actual pregnancy. It has been, and even the piano study, which has been instrumental prospectively telling us this, that you have a 3.4 increased risk of miscarriage in patients who are uh, disease activity in the first trimester. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a lot, yeah. right? Over the general population rate. Mm -hmm. That's a lot. So I think that's my first reference point as to why I justify everything we just talked about when Mm -hmm. he talked about meds, right? I frame it first by this. No woman wants to have a miscarriage at almost a three and a half times the rate of the general people who are not on meds or who relative to the general population risk, they want to do whatever they can to make sure that their baby's safe. So that's why inflammation matters. Then as you head into the second and third trimester, what you're looking at is potentially preterm labor or delivery, which I tell my moms, you and I should not be talking when a baby is in the NICU at 25 weeks about what we should have done differently. And there's no looking back at, well, I should have started you on Remy. We don't want to have that conversation. My role is to give you the safe options to make sure we never get in that with the best ability. Nothing's ever perfect. And also to reduce the risk of preeclampsia. 
Now, as you age, and a lot of IBD women are increased C-section utilization because of age and also complications of perianal disease and pouches and things that may influence some rectal vaginal facilities, things that increase or just having really bad disease and flared and we need to get the baby out, whatever the reason, IBD itself is associated with you know, higher C-section rates. But we know preeclampsia, we want to minimize that because active inflammation can really put the mom at risk and the baby. Preterm delivery, preterm birth, low birth weight, small for gestational age, all the things the mom does not want to happen, we do walk them through. And there's some data that even cognitive development in the third trimester, where all they need to do is grow, but you're getting the gyri from this like flat, you're getting the neural development that doing that in an inflamed state could actually, there's been data to show that in cord blood, they've looked at gene expression and showed that TNF and IL-1 beta elevation is tied with increased risk of cognitive and behavioral related issues in kids born to moms with inflammation. So I've gone as far, and it's not a desperate attempt. It's a reality check for moms to say, this is why we treat straight through. This is why we don't stop meds at 20, 22 weeks. There's a reason. And we want your baby to always be in a anti-inflammatory environment. And that's really how our discussions go. Can I ask a couple of follow-up questions on that? My first one is if a patient plans to get pregnant, is your goal mucosal healing before the pregnancy or do you allow them to get to clinical remission and maybe biochemical remission? Um, and my second question is, does active inflammation affect male fertility as well? So I'll answer the second one because it's a little easier in the sense that there's been, as opposed to AMH, where we're able to measure something as a marker, you know, and sulfasalazine has been shown to maybe be associated with oligospermia. So I'd say from a fertility perspective, men who are having difficulty conceiving, then if they're on sulfasalazine, we should remember that. There was some dabbling about methotrexate, maybe doing something to that effect, but the Otis registry debunked any sort of impact on fertility. And also recent publications suggest that any of our meds are really not impacting pregnancy outcomes in, in our male patients taking the drug. So that's on that end. However, disease activity, thinking about sexual function and dysfunction is where we need to focus. So the fertility wouldn't be directly tied to something that's in the sperm or something related to our meds, but more so tied to just decreased libido, impact of medications on mood, depression, steroid use, and just libido and sexual dysfunction. I think that's where we need to focus our discussions with Males who are asking you as they're older, and we're not going to have this discussion with the parents of a 10-year-old, but you know, later on, they're going to want to, maybe when they're 18, I've had males who have come to me who I'm still following in college because we always do some transition because they're like out there in nowhere land and they want to connect with you and the mom doesn't want to let them go until like they graduate. Fine. We have to have these discussions because they will ask me and I love when they talk to me about an urgency that could just change everything, right? So I'm very clear with men that part on fertility. So that answer is like a little bit more easier to answer. Now, the other piece on how we're talking about remission and the definition. So with UC, to be fair, if they're having urgency and rectal bleeding, they're not in good control. Calpro is going to be up. The question is, is it proctitis or is it beyond? So the burden of that inflammation, to be honest, tomorrow would be important. Because I had a perfect case on Wednesday, lovely lady, 39. So, you know, she had her first baby at 36. There's a big difference. She finally got ready to get pregnant again, had been through a lot, had been off meds because she was on 6MP, but had skin malignancies. So there was a reason not to, and she was happy, feeling well, not going back on and just wanted a break. No problems So everyone. Her care team was fine with that. And so she came to see me because her care team said, go talk to her because your Calpro is now up and you're having a little bit of urgency. And she got a scope and she approached. And she's 39. So I know automatically that there's going to be potentially a difference in her fertility. And so I'm on a time clock a little bit that I wasn't necessarily on at 36. She was on meds, well-controlled, but I'd come off. So in the last four weeks of pregnancy, she stopped the thiopurine, didn't want any thiopurine crossing to the baby. I got it. We helped her through it. She did great. Okay. So she asked me the same question how much do you want me on a biologic? You told me, I remember having the conversation that if I want to get pregnant again, I'm going to have to switch to something else. And she asked me, does proctitis alone make me a candidate for moving up? 
And should I be on it now? How many weeks should I be on it? What if I respond to suppositories? Exactly what goes on in my life that I'm like, oh my God, I got to figure this out. So I said to her that go back on the suppositories. We'll follow your CalPro. I did say I'd like her to see our fertility team because maybe intrauterine insemination would be a better, faster approach because she had been trying. I was trying to gently say that you're 39, you're going to be 40. And unfortunately, all of us have to go through that realization and even just a consult with them because you could do IUI and do other things to get you there faster before you get on in terms of age and fertility capability. So I had her think about it. She sent me a MyChart message yesterday that would you put me on a biologic if I wasn't thinking about pregnancy? I mean, this is my life. So I'm like algorithming out all these conversations, which fits exactly what you said. I did tell her she could continue trying. She only had proctitis, but I need her to go on something because she had a history of pancolitis. You see? So I hope that addresses how the burden needs to come in her severity in the past, what you know can happen in 10 months where you don't want to have to intervene too much. And even I told her, even if it means you hate it, I'll be able to convince you that to stay on it for 10 months and then we can negotiate because this is her last baby. So these are the conversations we do have. So burden of what I call remission does change. Deep remission is ideal. That's where you want. We scope all women. I tell them before, and then I walk out of the scope room and they ask me in a half sort of propofol state, I'm not, can I, I say, go for it. Literally, they're ovulating the next night and they're like pregnant. You know, this is how my, my life is. They come into my clinic. 10 minutes after I just scoped them saying, well, you told me I could go for it. I'm like, wow, that was fast. <laughs> but these are what happens in my life on Wednesday. So I just give you the impression that I try and get them to the deepest I can, follow yeah. them with symptoms and Calpro during, and then pivot as I can. So you had talked about the impact of IBD surgery on fertility. You mentioned that iliopalate analasmosis, that there is some risk of adhesions. Is that kind of the primary thing that we're thinking about there or, you know? alosachectomy, other kinds of surgeries, is there a risk with that? Good, like amazing question. Because all of the literature, when you see people talk about it, they always talk of J pouches mm -hmm. and the pelvic dissection and adhesions. I would tell you that any pelvic surgery, including perforated colon in a Crohn's patient where you had a segmental resection, or they've had rectal strictures, that means they have chronic rectal inflammation, or they had a big pelvic abscess. When that healed, there was adhesions typically on the ovaries and potentially in the fallopian tube. So it does require a knowledge that any kind of complication leading to surgery or perhaps even got away without surgery that occurred in the pelvis and or in proximity to the fallopian tubes can result in scar tissue. Okay, so that's an important thing. Typically, ICR is when it is more ileal, right-sided, not necessarily associated with pelvic abscesses, or maybe just the phlegmon right beside the ileum. Typically, we haven't seen the same amount of fertility decrease, but there is an element of what we call subfertility, which means it may take them a little longer to get pregnant. And that was recently published by Sonia Friedman that for some reason, which is new data, no one ever looked at it compared, we've always been focused on UC surgery, that she actually showed that Crohn's patients who've had surgery actually may take a little longer to get pregnant than IBD patients without surgery and maybe even shockingly you see. So I was like confused. I need to understand more why that could be if there are other elements that are not accounted for when you do database research, right? Because you don't account for all the confounders. Yeah. When a patient gets pregnant and they want to have a plan for delivery, when do you recommend vaginal delivery versus you say you need a C-section um, and that's what your recommendation would be? Probably the most contentious discussions I have in the room when my MFM and I are together. Fair, because that's their job and I'm imposing like I know what I'm doing. You know, I just sort of like think I'm an, an MFM when I I'm play one on TV when I'm in my these, uh, <laughs> these meetings. But I think this is probably one of the most emotional decisions that we do have and discussions with our patients. So let me make a statement overall. We know with IBD that there are two probably absolute contraindications. I'm taking IBD as a totality. Active, complex, perianal fistulizing disease, recurrent abscesses, even some would say even if seemingly in control with a simple transphenteric fistula with a seton in place, that some people may play with, especially women who I treat many women in the Orthodox Jewish community, for example, who have multiple children. There is, it isn't like I ask the question, to some, are you planning on having more than three children? There's a reason for my madness there. That's because the risk to the mom, 
and Previa and other things that can increase the more C-sections you have, the more times you go through the uterus, right? And the abdominal wall. So there's a reason why I asked that question is probably one of the reasons we start going down vaginal versus, you know, C, but also stating up front, first that question, then, all right, what are the absolute contraindications? So after they've told me they're planning on having many children, there is no limit, then I have to rethink my attitude, even for patients who I've advised, you've had active perianal or you've had a very complex history of perianal and they're still pushed back and they'll go with vaginal. So you try to explain why you're saying this, but sometimes culturally and just religiously, they don't match. So you have to always be open to matching your recommendations and what the literature says to the culture and the goals. So let's just say it's not that population, but I'm talking to anybody I ask, are you planning on having three, four or five children? Most laugh at me and tell me I'm done with this one. I already have one and I'm done. I can't do anymore. Whatever discussions we have, that's fine. And then I say, well, these are the absolute active you know, perianal disease and a history of a rectovaginal or active va- rectovaginal, that automatically means there's a defect in the vaginal wall. That won't end necessarily well if you're pushing. I just don't want them to have long-term complications, prolapsing, weakened wall, lots of things can happen. I have a direct dialogue with the team on that. That, I think our MFMs are on the same page. Where it becomes tricky is gray, right? There's a lot of white areas, black areas, but the gray area is someone with a J pouch who already wakes up at night, who already has a sphincter that may have been compromised from just chronic rectal, anal rectal inflammation. The last thing they want to encounter is a lot of pelvic pressure through prolonged vaginal delivery. They already have a weakened pelvic floor because of being pregnant and they may have multiple pregnancies. So we know what happens in women who don't have a surgery about pelvic floor and the sling and the need, the need for control of the muscle and the sphincter tone. So in my practice, I will tell you, unless they absolutely do not want a vaginal or for reasons where repeat C-section would be dangerous, I am recommending a C-section. I'll be honest, that is my practice. And my MFMs understand because it's not a classic discussion about C-section. These people have lost continence ability potentially already and or building it back up because they've got rid of sitting on the toilet for multiple times due to the urgency of when they have the colon and the pouch also there's issues potentially with continence. And then most of the time what I tell my women is that the number one reason for C-section is not IBD related. There's so many obstetrical reasons why you may need a C-section, like breach or so many other things that are happening that I cannot wave my magic wand and say, you need a C-section. So they understand. And that's where my MFM backs off on me because I do have that caveat that it's not like, oh, because Marla said so. That's not the reason on a table as to why they had a C-section. So we wanted to switch gears a little bit and ask about vaccines, especially for moms with IBD who are on biologics. So first of all, I guess there's kind of two parts. So one, are there any vaccines that have to be or should be postponed for the infant if the mom is on a biologic? And then are there any vaccines that the mom should or should not get during pregnancy that we're starting to talk about now? Great question. I'll answer the first one about the baby. The good news is even with biologics, there will be crossing the placenta. We talked about that. We've measured cord blood. We know there's biologics. Let's not panic. I try and downplay that concept to the mom. If she asks, I'll say yes, but we know XXX, right? So let's talk about live vaccines. I say, just like you, you can't get live vaccines when you're on these meds. The same applies to the baby. The good news is, you know, because it's always important to spin it like good news first, is that the only vaccine that the baby would, in essence, not be able to get that's live in the first six months is the rotavirus vaccine. And I explain what that vaccine is. It's an oral vaccine. I also reassure her that in piano and outside of piano, babies have gone for their visit to the pediatrician and we have forgotten whether it's the father that brought the baby to the appointment sure. and missed that conversation or someone else or the mom was totally distracted because the baby was crying. It doesn't matter. I reassure them, this is fine. We're probably being overly cautious about Rhoda. But let's move on. Let's assume that. And some pediatricians have called me and said, is it okay if I delay Rhoda to six months? I say, yes, that's fine. And then I say, all the others, please get on time. Nothing for the baby to avoid. And the good news is MMR and varicella is at a year. Move forward, no issue. So we reassure them in a positive way that everything's the same as if I was having 
a baby versus them because I always like to make the distinction. So I don't have IBD. I'm not on that med. What would be different? Now, during pregnancy, we recommend them to get pneumococcal. We want them to get hepatitis B. Again, we explain that we want Tdap and why we give them Tdap and when. And we explain that it's relative to the immunoprotection that the baby's going to get when things start crossing. It's all part of this conversation I have about when meds are good to go or not. So again, if they're on these meds, they would not be able to get a live vaccine. And the biggest complexity is MMR, guys, because that's the biggest thing. Because if they're not rubella immune and measles, but I'm focused on rubella because of congenital rubella, right? And all we recommend, because they're on already a biologic, it's we'll have to deal with it maybe post-pregnancy if we can delay. Maybe some people, there's a honeymoon. That's a whole other arc, which is how long, when do you give, how long before you go back. That requires a whole other podcast. But that idea is that we just, we have to have an open dialogue with them about what that means. Thankfully, for the last 10 years that I've been measuring rubella titers in a preconception, you'd like to know that before, is it's a very small number of people who don't. More so, I've seen mumps not always immune, but rubella and measles are fine. So it's not rubella as being the biggest issue, thankfully. But all you can do is good hand washing, right? That's all you can do because we're not giving them a live vaccine. Yeah. Yeah. That's very interesting. So up to six months, you recommend to avoid any live vaccines. Uh, That's our education. Yes. And just to go back to the rubella, because I thought that was very interesting. You measure the rubella titers and make sure they don't have rubella before they get pregnant. Make sure they're immune to rubella. Immune to rubella. Yeah. God forbid they have rebellion, then I'm like in trouble. (laughs) But yes, that they have immunity, right? From their vaccines, like baby and booster. And that's the one we want to make sure that they have protection to give the baby. Because if the baby doesn't have immunity to it, then you could run the risk. And if mom gets it because she's not immune, we get the congenital rubella. So all the microcephaly and everything we learned way back in the day, um, I remember none of it. So just, I just know that something happened. So that's all I get when I talk to them. Uh, I leave that to my MFN to like remember that embryology stuff. So the key is that's why I've started to be honest. All my patients, I'm checking, my women, I'm checking rubella titers when I check varicella. I'm just doing it and teaching my fellows just routine in women. You do want to know because if they aren't immune on misalamine, which you guys all know me, how many of patients of my patients you think are really still on misalamine, (laughs) but that's another podcast as well. But the idea if they're on drugs that I can use live vaccines or the red book does say if they're on two milligrams per kilogram or less of thiopurines, they can get it. If they're on less than 10 milligrams of metho or less than 20 of pred, they can get a live vaccine. So there is some movement in there, depending on how you practice and what meds you're using. But once they start the biologic uh, journey, it makes it complicated. So I would like to, and I start when I first see patients, you know, you're routinely checking varicella, and we're moving to let them know that they are not immune. I'm adding rubella for my females. So that's That's the added. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. This is the whole purpose of the podcast. Let's get women prepared so that we can counsel them well as they get older. So I, I love that question. And I think it really highlights the purpose of today's podcast. So what about breastfeeding? Do biologics pass through breast milk? And would you encourage moms to breastfeed? Any contraindications to breastfeeding? So the first thing that I like to do, because moms, again, there's a lot of fear. And one of their biggest reasons they choose not to breastfeed is just they just don't know about the meds and they're fearful about the meds on the baby. They know breastfeeding is good for the baby. That's not the problem. And they're not worried about passing their IBD on through breastfeeding. It's the meds. So just like I told you, I start off my dialogue about safety and lactation. I add that on because I want them to feel reassured. However, this is what we do know is that I explain the following. Just like we can't give you a pill of infliximab, the molecule is so big that the baby would not be able to digest it just like you can't across their digestive tract. It's a huge protein. So the good news is that even if it's in their breast milk, which I then tell them it's like at nanogram, almost undetectable levels, that it's going to be pooped out. So the reality is we don't even lose a second of sleep or, you know, our neurons are not firing about, oh my God, is this unsafe for the baby? So we do explain that up front. However, for small molecules, that comes back to our earlier discussion, it isn't recommended because these small molecules are passing through. So the question on the table for now, because of the long half-life of xanamide, which is about up to three months for an entire elimination, 
tofa. They're taking it every day. I don't know if pumping and dumping really makes sense, just like with the old school days of six more captive period and what we used to say. So I think at the moment, patients on the newer small molecules, until we get more safety, we're saying that it wouldn't be appropriate to breastfeed. Again, I do not come to them and tell them to not do anything. This is a very personal, all we're there, like FDA, make recommendations. Hopefully we're not there to drive. They come to us for our expertise. So if we tell them that, in general, they'll then say, if I didn't stay on it, do I have other options that I could use to keep my disease under control that I can use in breastfeeding? And that's where our dialogue goes to. Absolutely. Yeah. And as we wrap up the topic, so that was an awesome conversation. I feel like that was so helpful for me, I'm sure for all of our listeners. Yeah. And then, so just to summarize, so the patient comes to you and says, in the near future, I want to have a child. So you touched on some of the important factors that they have to think about, including disease control. What do you usually say? Like, okay, this is our game plan. These are the, the priorities you have to take care of. So again, I focus always on disease remission. And my definition is mucosal because we've all seen that famous slide where you have up and down of inflammation and then the bowel walls like, hee hee hee, you know, like laughing at us as we're using misalamine and steroids and jumping jacks of diet and all this kind of stuff. That in the back end, there's ongoing bowel wall damage. And that's for UC and Crohn's. I know we talk a lot about transmural stuff, in Crohn's, but we are clearly understanding that that is also happening in UC, particularly rectal compliance, and we're really doing damage beyond what we think. And this anorectal stuff that our patients suffer from that we don't even talk about, which I hope is going to be a huge topic for the next decade about urgency and anorectal you know, dysfunction and bowel wall damage from a fibrosis of the rectum in particular, is that although you're, I'm happy you're symptomatically better, I must contain the chronic bowel wall damage, and that means transmural healing. I'm even bringing out a whole other stride sort of initiatives that were really, and now I was so glad to see we're starting to look at intestinal ultrasound, even as a marker in clinical trials to show that we can achieve transmural healing, which is super exciting. And so I think we're even going to change people's lives more by setting a higher bar for bowel wall damage. So my definition today is mucosal healing. I'm sort of hoping that I can translate that to transmural as ultrasound get rolled out across the country as part of our routine monitoring and our endpoints and trials. I'm so excited. And that's important. So I set the bar high and don't, don't, accept less. This is what Mm -hmm. I've now started to really be strong in my convictions to my patients only because of what I know can happen. And I have this added knowledge because I treat adults almost 50-50 with peds, by the way. I know what can happen. So I Mm -hmm. think patients may not always get that perspective, which I may scare them a little, which is fine. It's always good to educate. It may seem fearful, but if you turn it into why the benefits of this knowledge is and how we can get on that quickly, your life will be fabulous. You know, that's the whole like Emily in Paris starting back to the beginning. And be, you know, and dress in the highest of fashion. I think Emily and Paris actually cool segue because it actually sets, you know, where your goals are and our job is to get you there. And we know today that this is how we get you to your Emily in Paris moment. And I think that sort of really sets the stage for our dialogue with our, with our patients, particularly our women. I like that. We can get you to your Emily in Paris moment. (laughs) (laughs) That's going to be the title of this episode, actually. Yes. I like that title. Be like, what is this? I know. (laughs) You'll be shocked when it's actually about pregnancy and IBD. You know. (laughs) Dr. Davinsky, I feel like I could listen to you talk for hours (laughs) and hours and hours and learn from you all this knowledge. This is amazing. Just to wrap up this episode, we'd like to ask you, looking back at your career, what has been the most valuable advice you've received? And what advice do you give for our listeners? I remember, and this is me being vulnerable and telling you, I remember I was an advanced fellow. And I remember not getting one of the ACG clinical grants. Again, it was like, we're talking, this wasn't a deal breaker in my life, but what did I know? And I thought I had the best idea in the planet, which obviously others didn't think at the time (laughs) I should have taken that. And so I remember like crying in my little cubicle to staff. And all he said to me was, you need to have faith and persevere. And he sort of shook me. 
and got me back into this resilience mode, take these negative experiences and turn them into positive and build a platform of leadership as we go. And so that really has been able to help me, you know, get where I needed to go. And I think I remember that. And I think my fellow team members would say now that that's exactly how they hear me. And I repeat that and I live it. And I think living it and embracing it allows you to move forward. And it was just that moment. I hadn't cried again, the next paper that didn't get published in the next breath, I moved forward. And that I think is really important to me. And it helped me get talking to you today. Wow. It's it's always amazing amazing when it's like a mentor's one sentence, how it can really impact someone's uh, Mm -hmm. entire career and also how they treat their mentees. So once again, thank you so much for uh, joining us on this episode. The final question. So any final last words for our listeners? Always, you know, always find where you want to go and don't be ashamed or embarrassed to ask others who have already paved somewhat of a a road. You don't have to reinvent it, Mm -hmm. right? Just get people and be resolute in where you want to go and make sure that your story makes sense. So when you're sitting on a podcast 20 something years later, (laughs) it all made sense, right? That is really important that your story and your journey needs to fit with your goals and passions, but it also can make sense to help others take this journey again. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Once again, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been an honor to talk to you. That was a great episode. I mean, I learned a lot. It was amazing. She is uh, maybe one of my heroes now too. Oh, yeah. She's amazing. That was (laughs) great. Yeah. That was a great conversation. So if you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at Bow Sounds and on Facebook at at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. If you like what you heard and want to support the podcast, it would really help us if you did one or all of the following three things. Tell one person about the podcast or two. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others discover our podcast. And three, on our Buzzsprout page, there's a link to support the show by making a donation to the NASPGAN Foundation. You can also get there through www.naspgan.org. The money you donate helps support some of the amazing things the NASPGAN Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs. So don't forget to join the Twitter chat on Thursday, oh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, May 12th and 7 p.m. And that if you've listened this far, you deserve some credit. So go to the link in the show notes, get some CME. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And <laughs> as always, the discussion, views, and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the host and guests and are subject to change with the field. Oh, <laughs> that was that was very fast. <laughs> I was trying to go as fast as I could. We'll get faster and faster. Every episode, we just try to say this faster. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> all right, thanks all right. everyone. Thank you all for listening. Bye. Bye.